Hi, I'm Brews News Editor Matt Kirkegaard, and thanks to your malt mates at Cryo Malt, this is Beer is a Conversation. Beer is a Conversation is our weekly sit-down with some of the people who make the beer industry the interesting and dynamic thing that it is. And through these conversations, we dig a little deeper into the stories behind the businesses of beer and brewing. And this week, I hope you will indulge me a conversation as we speak with brewer Dean McLeod. I first met Dean in around about 2005 when he was brewing at Colonial Brewing in the Margaret River. By that stage, he'd already had a varied career, having brewed at Shara's Brewery and the Lord Nelson, as well as the Malt Shovel Brewery under recent guests Chuck Hahn and Doug Donnellan. He also went on to brew for Little Creatures and White Rabbit before moving to Canada. I've wanted to catch up with Dean for some years and to find out what he's been up to, and this was my chance. I hope you find it as interesting as it was for me. Enjoy the conversation. Dean McLeod, welcome to Beer is a Conversation. Yeah, thanks, uh, thanks for having me, Matt. Tell us a little bit about where you are. Uh, well, I'm in um, the city of Victoria, which is on Vancouver Island, off the west coast of uh, British Columbia. Um, pretty nice as far as um, weather goes in Canada. It doesn't get really cold here, but in the winter it rains a lot, so it's belting down with rain today. Pretty cold, but um, this will all be falling as snow on the mountains in Whistler, and um, yeah, it's pretty good. But, but not where you are, so you get the, 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 the cold, miserable conditions without the uh, you know, yeah. positive upside of snow. <laughs> exactly, but the snow's, snow's not too far away if you want to go drive there. Vancouver's amazing. You can... Um, you can ski on the on the mountains just behind Whistler in the morning, and then go play golf in the afternoon. It's uh, pretty remarkable. Um, <laughs> yeah, so we just get it as rain here, but um, you know we don't really mind. Are, are you an outdoorsman? Uh, yeah, in, in the mold of someone like Ben Krause, who we always see posting photos of his mountain biking uh, and outdoor activities. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I really got into mountain biking when I first moved to Canada. Um, I'm getting into a bit, little bit old for it now, and I kept sort of breaking bones and things like that, and it just took a long time to recover. So, uh, so now I'm more into sort of oceany things. We do a bit of kayaking, and um, a, a bunch of silly friends um, go swimming every morning at sunrise in winter. <laughs> I, I did see a photo of you, which just sounds very much like the icebergs uh, in in Sydney. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty much what we do, but the the water's actually really cold here, so it's um, yeah, I I, I have no idea why we do it, but it's fun. <laughs> so, for, for those who 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 possibly don't know who you are, um, I first met you. It would have been in two thousand three, two thousand four, when I was travelling through uh, the Margaret River, and you were brewing at Colonial. Yeah, that's right. It was actually 2005 that I 2005, moved there. okay. Um, yeah, and prior to that, I'd done a five-year stint at Malt Shovel in Sydney. And um, I was just kind of looking to, you know, do something, you know, be, be the be the head brewer, if you like. Um, and we had visited Margaret River several times before that. Um, both my wife and I were sort of wine and we've got friends who live down there who are winemakers uh we visited margaret river and thought wow what a beautiful part of the world if we could ever find jobs you know we'd be here in a in a heartbeat and uh yeah the job came up so yeah but, we went well tell us about that i mean 2005 is fairly early in the current cycle um for, for craft beer but you'd been brewing for some time before that 
Tell us how you got into, yeah. how you became a brewer in the first place. Uh, look, it's something I've always wanted to do. I think I decided back in 1993 when I finished my marine biology degree up in Townsville, um, I just decided, yeah, I want to be a brewer. And yeah, back in 93, there was there was not a lot going on. Um, so it was hard going to, to get a start anywhere. I was, I was approaching... Lion and CUB and places like that, and they weren't really hiring anyone because um, I'd moved back to Sydney by this stage, and there was really nothing going on in Sydney back in the back in the mid and late nineties. Um, yeah, but, but, so it's a bit of a hard road, Bane. Just even before we uh, get to that stage, I mean, you, you did marine biology um, finishing in ninety three, and that was yeah arguably post the Matilda Bay wave. It had, I think, fully been subsumed by CUB at that stage. It was available, but it wasn't, um, you know, the visible face of a new wave of craft beer, and it was before Mountain right. Goat. So what was it, you know, yep. so what sparked your interest in, in beer firstly, and, and what made you see making beer uh, as a viable alternative to marine biology? Uh, yeah, look, marine biology was a lot of fun. Uh, I really enjoyed doing it, but um, there weren't a lot of jobs in that either. Um, and <laughs> all of them were based in North Queensland, which are really, uh, after three years of living in Townsville, I was pretty keen to get out of there. Um, look, we, we had on campus this fantastic home brewers club, and I just got really into it. Um, I had been a home brewer since my really early days when I grew up in New Zealand. Um, I sort of dropped out of school early at 16 and um, was living with a bunch of blokes. And back then you couldn't go to the pub until you were 20. I think it's changed now. It's 18 in New Zealand now. Um, so, so we obviously had to brew at home because there was no other way of getting any beer. None of us had brothers who were old enough to come <laughs> buy beer for us. Um, so, so I've always been home brewing. Um, and yeah, I took this up again when I was at, on campus and then just decided at the end of it that, uh, look, I just want to be a brewer. It's just in my blood or something. So, uh, so yeah, I made that fateful decision to return to Sydney and, and pursue brewing back in 93. What was it about brewing that inspired you? And it, it, it can sometimes be a hard question um, because it, there's a bit of introspection involved about the, the things that actually, you know, connect with you but what was it about you know what was it the idea of making beer and having a lovable band of regulars at your own brew pub or was there something inherent in the art and science of brewing that that attracted you yeah certainly the art and science of it um fascinated me and um you know back when i was trying to develop my homebrew back in the 90s look, we didn't even have internet back then so there was no, no groups where you could share knowledge or information or anything. You would, uh, I had to read brewing textbooks from, you know, De Klerk and stuff like that and try and translate that back into a, into a homebrew scale, um, which I did to, uh, with varying degrees of success. But, um, but I don't know, there's something I've always loved about beer is sharing a beer with someone else and just having a chat, kind of like what we're doing now. Unfortunately, not over. It's nine. It's eight o'clock in the morning here. So while you're having a beer, I'm not. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. It's well over the yard. I'm here. So yeah, I've got a couple of beers lined up actually, and I'm going to be ripping into. Um, so yeah, look, look, I've, I've I've always loved that. I've always found that beer is a really great. 
bonding thing. Um, I can I can remember the very first taste of beer that I had with my dad back in I don't know 1977 I guess when uh, he, he was watching rugby league and his his mighty Sea Eagles beat Wests and uh, <laughs> he was so overjoyed he let me let me have a taste of his KB Lager from those old dimpled cans I don't know if you remember those I I, I remember the golden KB can I don't really remember that I, I don't specifically remember the dimpled can no but I'm a Queenslander. Oh, yeah, okay. Well, this was actually, the can was textured. There was, like, dimples in it. So it looked like it was covered in, in like, it was cold and frosty, even when it wasn't. <laughs> it was <brilliant>. Okay. <laughs> can never get away from marketing. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so, so, yeah, right back from when I was a, a kid, I've always said that years always been involved with those, um, you know, bonding moments, I guess. Which, yeah, did you think that's... A cultural thing? Do you think it's it's something that we learn because beer was the thing that you know fathers and sons, um, you know, bought, bought on and young mates um, got together? You know, back in in a day that it was typically uh, blokes that drank. Or do you think there is something inherent to beer that just has that implied casualness that, say, wine or spirits doesn't have that lends itself to being the thing that people you know, have a, have a relaxed conversation over? Yeah, I, I think, yeah, more the latter, uh, especially in my case, you know, with my father because he didn't drink much and uh, he didn't have a lot of mates. He didn't go out drinking with mates. They didn't come over for barbecues or anything like that. But it is, yeah, it is something more inherently casual about it. You know, it's an every man's drink, if you like. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, no, no it, was, it was interesting. I was just sort of wondering, it's something you common commonly hear and we are seeing beer change very, very rapidly and it is fortunately becoming much more inclusive than it was uh, yeah. you know, when I was first drinking. But I, I, I do wonder whether you know, it, it was that sort of old ideas of uh, blokiness and mateship and having a beer that facilitated it all there is something just relaxed and a little bit more casual about the product itself that we will see continue as you know some of those older stereotypes move away yeah i I think so and and certainly the old branding and messaging and everything was all about that sort of mateship thing and you know back in back in the 70s i'm sure i consumed a hell of a lot of beer advertising back then Mm. um on television and stuff like that. So there was always that image of, you know, mateship and that sort of thing. And I, and I think that, yeah, I'm not sure if it drove the the behavior or the behavior drove the marketing, but there was certainly, it was a very blokey thing and I'm glad it has changed. Yeah. Mm. So just to step back to you, you were saying that you, when you first got into homebrew and you were, you know, that there wasn't the, the, the Facebook groups, there wasn't the, uh, you know, beer advocates and there wasn't even the online ability to Google something to, to find out yeah. recipes and you had to go to, to textbooks. Were you all grain brewing or were you tweaking Cooper's kits back in those days? Uh, well, the first brewing I did back when I was like a 17-year-old in New Zealand, I actually went to like um, adult education night school at one of the local high schools, and, there, and one of the guys was teaching dads how to be homebrewers, and <laughs> I was really just a kid, but, but he was happy to have me on board as well. And we were, we were using extract, but, um, but it was unhopped malt extract, and we were using 
palletized New Zealand hops back then. And they were the old varieties that you don't even see anymore, like Smooth Cone and Callicross and uh, Green Bullet and things like that. Like this is like really early days of even New Zealand hop development. Um, so, so I've never actually brewed a Cooper's kit per se. Oh no, but yeah, um, so Cooper's I, kit is a bit of a generic of of the malt extract, you know, where not rather than all grain. Yeah, yeah, but um, but then, um, yeah, I got into sort of old grain brewing when I was in um in university, and then after university, when I couldn't get a brewing job, I ended up working in a yeast research and development laboratory. And uh, then I had all of this fantastic equipment available to me, and that was all grain brewing. And uh, yeah, I just brewed over and over and over the same beer, trying to trying to just get it perfectly correct. Yeah, that was a good time. Yeah, because it's interesting. One of the things that I, I do reflect on from time to time is when you hear of the sort of the you know, pioneers of craft beer or people who. Um, were in that early stage um you know yeah. they, they couldn't just walk into a home brew store and get an incredible array of hops they couldn't you know the, the early brewers had to make their own equipment from repurposed dairy equipment or you know wait yeah. for a, another brewery to fall over um yeah th- 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 there was that pioneering spirit about um beer in the early days uh that you had to be pretty committed or really feel a calling um, rather than just an interest in, in, in getting involved. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Like, and there were no like uh, online homebrew shops where you could order pretty good quality stainless equipment that you could use at home. So again, I was like going back to these textbooks and going, okay, this is what a lot of time looks like. Um, <laughs> I, need to, I need to come up with something that does the same sort of job. And uh, so, yeah, I fabricated all my own stuff and, uh, and it worked. Yeah, the the reason I ask that is because I'm sort of getting a little bit frustrated at the moment when you see, you know, people complaining about we we cover the ABAC um, decisions here, and you know ABAC is of saying well you can't Mm -hmm. make beer that you know might appeal to children, and you've got all these brewers going, you know, you're killing our creativity and you're going to smother the industry. And I sort of think back to you know the early days of craft beer. Well, we can't get equipment and we can't get ingredients. You know, we can't get. You know, no one wants to drink our beer. You know, publicans don't even know what we're making. Um, there just seems to be a world of difference between the challenges that some brewers uh, now seem to think that they're facing versus the early days. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, younger people, you know, they can't imagine a world without the internet because they <laughs> never had it. Um, you know, and they, they look at our, our old technology like CDs and stuff and go, what? <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, Look, I think it's great, and that, that sort of pioneering spirit I think is awesome, and 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 it, it actually really helps me as a brewer being able to, you know, solve problems, and you know, certainly being a, a head brewer of production scale breweries, I need to have that skill set, that sort of being able to come up with solutions to problems that aren't something that you can just buy or look up online. Yeah. Mm. And I don't want to turn this into one of those okay boomer moments where it's a couple of no. you know middle-aged white guys uh, talking about the good old days and how <laughs> kids today just don't. But but there, there is that element of perspective that you know because this yeah. was only twenty years ago, um, you know, just yeah, over twenty right. years ago. So the, the 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 brewing world has evolved and morphed incredibly quickly. It has, yeah, and and the internet's done that um, absolutely. Uh, 
it's you know it's it's changed so many different industries and ways of doing things um, and brewing. Absolutely, that's for sure. Now it's, it's quite coincidental that I've got you on when I have because I think I reached out to you about seven or eight months ago uh, and first suggested that, that, that we have a chat um, but it was yeah. just trying to fit it in and you know you are in Canada and it makes it a little bit harder but it, it just happens that this conversation follows um, a recent conversation with Chuck Hahn and also Doug Donnellan who were oh, the, 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 the two people who uh, you brewed under in your first commercial job I believe. Uh, no, I actually worked um, for Shara's down in Picton. Oh, you in, worked for Shara? Uh, wow, that, okay. Yeah, and and then I worked at the Lord Nelson as well. Wow, too, which fortunately um, the Lord Nelson is is still around and uh, Shara's uh, little brewery uh, has fallen by the wayside, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Um, they, they, they were good times. This was after I'd sort of um, finished well, when I finished up at the Yeast Research and Development Place, because it closed down because I went out of business, I actually went back to university and did some brewing study and then came back to Sydney in 98 looking for work. And um, and then things were starting to just get going. Um, I think that was a year that, um, that Malt Shovel got going in 98. And uh, so, yeah, so I kicked around a couple of these brew pubs and then in 2000, um, I was just getting so frustrated because it was taking me so long to get anywhere. I think I went to Doug Donnellan. I wrote to him and said, you need to employ me, otherwise I'm lost to the industry. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, he actually phoned back and said, uh, can you start on Monday? <laughs> um, so, so that was awesome. So, and that was great, you know, because then I actually learned how to brew properly under Chuck Hahn. And every time I meet Chuck again, um, I just I I thank him so much for what he did for me. And he's so humble. He just never he just goes, oh, you know, whatever. But he's you know, so many people have gone through malt travel and benefited from his experience. And uh, yeah, I, I hope he he's recognised for what he's done for the industry in Australia. Yeah, look, I, I, and I hope he does as well. But I, I think that there is that element of breweries and businesses at that end of the market you know you almost need to separate them out because the breweries are staffed by people um, who are very very passionate yeah. and, and Chuck is an incredibly generous um, contributor to the the industry and breweries and individuals but he is also part of a of a, of a business that makes some of those same businesses that much harder yeah 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 um, look Back, back when I was working with Chuck, back in, you know, between 2000, 2005, you know, the industry was a bit different back then. And, you know, big breweries like Lion weren't as, I don't know, despised, I guess, as they are now. Um, so, yeah, uh, Chuck's got a, a hard line to walk, I guess. Mm. Yeah, I, I caught up with him this week because we've uh, just brewed a uh, a beer that came out of an earlier conversation that we had about the original Han Premium um, that he yes. when he first released that in '88 he uh, sort of dialed it back a little bit because it was too challenging for the market in those days. So I just sort of thought, would well, you? I'd love to sort of taste something that approximates that um, to to get an idea of what was a challenging beer, you know, back in you know 1988. Yeah. Um... 
yeah, we, we lovingly referred to that beer as Han Previous. Um, <laughs> and uh, I loved that beer. Jesus, it was good. And, um, yeah. But unfortunately, I think, again, it was just a bit before a bit before the times. Yeah, so, so tell me about your time at uh, Malt Shovel then. So or actually, tell, tell me about uh, the, your days under Jeff Shara. I mean, he was... He, he would be a name that a lot of our listeners probably wouldn't be uh, aware of, but he, um, Willie Simpson tells a, a funny story that when Jeff Shara first went to uh, get a license to brew, um, the New South Wales government didn't have an application to create a license because breweries had only ever closed for two or three generations. Yeah, that's right. Um, pretty amazing. And what kicked it off, um, you know, because he had like an Austrian heritage, because um, he used to be on the main road. Picton used to be on the main road to Melbourne, but uh, then they put in the bypass and, and suddenly like 80% of his uh, business just died overnight, um, you know, at the George the Fourth pub. So his idea to, you know, bring a bit of business back in there was to, to start a small brewery and um and he was working with Otto Binding who's the you know from the Binding family in uh, in Munich and uh yeah he built this little traditional German brew house and uh yeah just made two traditional German style lagers um he was a real character uh I I worked with Dave Edney there as well I don't know if a lot of your um Listeners will remember Dave. He well, he was at Mountain Goat. Well, he was yeah. at Mountain Goat and Mornington Peninsula, I think. And he recently yeah. left the industry um, because yeah, I, 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 believe he, for... I, I believe he found out that he was gluten intolerant. Yeah, that's right. He's had trouble <laughs> with it for a while, but yeah, what what a what a blow. <laughs> but um, anyway, uh, I, I was working with Dave at uh, at Shara's, and you know, Dave didn't get on with him all that well because he was just so eccentric. Um, but I, I loved Jeff. I, I, he was, I thought he was a wonderful human being and um, I used to just love spending time with him. He was just a completely disorganised disaster of a human. But, um, geez, he had a big heart and um, yeah, I loved him. He, he was a, I was very sad when he passed away. It's funny because it does sound like he was. I mean, not a polarizing influence, but it sounds like there were people who loved him deeply, and then people who who uh, had had a, a more explosive relationship with him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some of the some of the brewers after me, like Marcus. Um, yeah, they didn't get along all that well, but <laughs> I, I don't know. It was just I thought he was great. You know, again, a pioneer. Um, and yeah, like you say, a lot of people do love him and respect what he did in the industry. Remember, he had that, you know, the Australian Hotel in the Rocks, and he served only his beer that he brewed down in Picton. You know, back in the days when, you know, there was Tooth or Tuies or Rashes was the sort of only thing you could get in Sydney. Um, and he had his own beer on tap in his own pub. It was amazing. And so, could I, I remember the Burragarang Bock, and he also had a lager. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty much all he brewed. <laughs> and a Burragarang Bock was it was, was a revelation to me uh, when I first tried it because it was unlike anything yeah. that I'd ever had. Yeah, no, it was it was good beer. Um, when it was on song, I mean, I can remember stories of like you know Willie Simpson and Doug Donnellan 
you know, driving down in Doug's old taxi with, you know, <laughs> growlers to fill up and take back to Sydney. Yeah. So, so, and, and then you uh, also spent some time at uh, with another great character of the brewing industry at the Lord Nelson. Oh, Blair Hayden. Yes. Yeah. So, um, so Blair Hayden is one of the characters who I I don't revere quite as as much as uh, as uh, Jeff Shara, but um, I don't know. I think at the time, I think he's mellowed out a bit now. But at the time, he was having some health issues and. Um, you know, he wasn't the greatest guy to work for, to be honest. Um, I didn't get a lot of time in the brew house there either. Um, his son, Tripp, was uh, was brewing at the time. And he's incidentally now over in uh, British Columbia as well, brewing in uh, on the mainland, which is kind of interesting. Um, so I only got a few opportunities to actually work there. Mostly I was just managing the bar. and um, But it was great. So many... Um, Everyone who loves Sydney and beer used to come to uh, to the Lord Nelson in those days. And so, yeah, you know, often I'd be serving beers to Paul Mercurio and the like. So it was a great time. <laughs> uh, now, tell us about your time at uh, Malt Shovel because the James Quire brand obviously only uh, rebirthed the Camperdown Brewery back in 98, I believe it was. So you would, if you were there yeah. um, around about 2000. Um, yeah. You, you would have been there in, in in the very early days when beers like the the amber um, ale were the were, were the flagships. Yeah, I think there was only two beers being brewed um, when I started the amber, and it may have been the the pilsner, and um, which was a hundred percent more beer than used to be brewed there when it was just Han Premium. Uh, so so even that I think um, was a bit hard for Chuck to manage having two beers. Um, but then, we, yeah, we obviously expanded the range quite dramatically while I was there. And then afterwards, I think the range really expanded. Um, there, there are so many different James Gray beers out there now that I don't even uh, yeah, recognize most of them. But it, it was a good time. There was um, We weren't selling much beer when I started in 2000, but it ended up being about 6 million litres when I left, and now they're doing... 20 or so out of Camperdown. Um, I, I'm not sure if they've moved some of their beers to other line breweries. I would imagine they have. Oh, yeah, so some of their bigger, um, yeah, the, the, the mainstream yeah. beers uh, are, are brewed out of... Um, oh, Tui's and Lidcombe? Yeah, Lidcombe. Lidcombe was the uh, yeah. what I was thinking of. So um, they're, they're certainly brewing beers elsewhere but it's still a, a lovely little brewery that's putting out some some interesting beers and they're, they're brewing a lot of the umundi beers now as, as that brand grows oh cool yeah well that that was that was the one beer that i used to like when i was in north queensland because it used to be brewed in umundi um but that that sort of shut down while i was there in the 90s and i was always hoping they revised that so that's great to see that back again it, it's, a, it's a very different beer than it was the it's more the brand than the original beer, but they still make a, a cracking lager and some nice uh, uh, little locally available seasonals up there, So, which is good. Oh, cool. So so what what did you learn um, as a young, I guess that was your first um, big house brewery or, you know, as small as it was, it was still very different to the, the Lord Nelson or uh, Shara's brewery. 
Yeah, no, it was good. We we learned a lot of stuff from Chuck. We used to find him very frustrating at the time, but now there's so many um, like Chuckisms I go back to <laughs> um, as a professional brewer. And yeah, such as really, oh, um, what was one of the things he used to say? You know, because he was so mild mannered. Um, but when, but every now and again, he would just blow up on someone and you know tear them a new asshole. And it was so shocking to see from Chuck that everyone took notice and he said to us like afterwards once he said you know you you've got to have a bit of asshole about you but you have to know when to use it <laughs> and uh and i and i always remember that and and it does help um occasionally yeah but just yeah lots of other things just about uh you know consistency and um uh attention to detail and cleanliness and hygiene and all of those um, things you need to, you know, be a, a professional brewer and do it properly. Um, yeah, we, we learned, we were drilled pretty well in, in that sort of, those basics. So I know that you remember that time with, you know, a lot of affection, but what, what saw you move yeah. on um, from, from leaving uh, James Squire? Oh, look, I think everyone at some stage wants to be the guy in charge. Um, not just so you can steer the direction of the beer program, but... Um, you know, you just take it on as a personal challenge, you know, being the person who's responsible. Um, I always wanted to do that. Um, so I think, you know, when that opportunity came up in Margaret River um, at uh, Colonial, yeah, I, I sort of jumped on it because my wife and I had visited there a few times before. It's a beautiful part of the world. And we we always imagined if, if work became available, we'd, uh, we'd, we'd be there in a heartbeat. And and yes, yeah, so I was lucky enough that that came up, and um, yeah, I enjoyed my time there until everything went pear shaped. And uh, and uh, tell us about that because, maybe. but my memory um, of two thousand and five was it it was a really cutting edge brewery back in those days. As a hospitality venue, it was a very schmick um, you know place to visit. The the, the brewery, yeah. um, you know, it was quite tight, but it was. You know, a, 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 for for those days, you know, a, quite an adventurous um, installation. Tell us what happened in the early days of the Colonial brand. Um, look, it it got off to a pretty good start, and like you say, a lot of money was invested in the venue itself. It was a fantastic place to go. You know, with your kids, it had you know a a big paddock of ten acres where you could run around and kick a footy and ride a horse or do whatever and you know, and had outdoor barbecue facilities and all that sort of stuff. It was a really good place to go and visit. It always had challenges um, from a production standpoint in that there was only single-phase electricity down that street and no water and no gas. So we had to collect a year's worth of brewing water from the roof into gigantic tanks. Um, <laughs> I, I, remember, I actually remember photographing both the gas uh, and the... Um... The, the, the water tanks back in those days and I'd not quite realised that that was the challenge because I think it was being sold as being an environmental benefit as opposed to a uh, you know, necessity of circumstances. Yeah, exactly. You know, th this is a thing. If, if you know anything about building breweries, you'd never build one there um, because you just had no access to services. But, um, you know, the, the previous owner built it basically on the on his own property and didn't think about any of those things beforehand. <laughs> and, uh, and you're right. They just became, uh, 
problems that needed a solution. So it, it ended up working, and, and we brewed some fabulous beer from that nice rainwater, that's for sure. I, I remember the coal shit you were brewing back then that was just uh, delightful. Yeah, it was... Well, it wasn't really a Kolsch no, in I any didn't. way, shape, or form, but it was it was still a tasty beer. I, I didn't have much to do with the, the marketing or, or the or the branding or anything, but um, yeah, we we did enjoy that enjoy brewing that one. It was it was tricky to brew on that little system, but um, but yeah, we it, it was good fun. It was a good challenge. Well, a rose by any other name uh, still smells sweet. So uh, yeah, it, yeah, even if it wasn't a Kolsch, it was a delightful beer that I uh, re- remember fondly. But uh, for, for me, yeah, Colonial thanks. was also publicly listed or, or, or publicly yeah, listed the, soon after. Yeah, yeah th- this is the thing. So so it was, it was originally privately owned um, with a few silent uh, investors. Um, so the owner lived on the property. He, he was a bit of a you know entrepreneurial type who'd start up and listed other IT and communications companies in the past. So he said to me, "We need to win AIBA in order to go public." So I said, "Well, okay, we're going to need this and that, and you're going to have to spend this on ingredients and so on and so forth." And and he agreed to all of that, and we did. So I've been there for only seven or nine months, and we won Champion Small Brewery at AIBA. And then he did this public uh, public listing and um, basically created a, a, a company in order to buy himself out. And, um, yeah, it, it, it didn't go well for him. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it sounds, um, whilst you know, things change, it, it sounds like there are still similar challenges that breweries are facing, you know, in, in terms of de-risking the founders' um, investment, uh, you know, equity crowdfunding wasn't an, an option then, so it was pretty much if you weren't bought, yep. you had to to list on the on the stock market. Um, yeah. But it, it, it sounds like some of those challenges still continue twenty you know, or fifteen years later. And yeah, that seems to be the flavour of the day in Australia. It's been lots of mergers and acquisitions in recent times. Um, it seems to be, you know, for for big breweries like Lion and and uh, CUB to just buy a brewery and buy its brand rather than develop their own. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of guys who've done really well. I, I read recently that Bolter had sold to CUB. They did indeed, yeah. So that uh, they were purchased uh, for an undisclosed sum. Yeah, well, good for them. Yep, I guess. absolutely. Yeah, no, look, half their luck, I guess it... Uh, it does make it interesting for the, for those who are left, you know, as the tap handles become more apparently uh, independent. Um, it makes it hard yes. for the guys that, that that do stay independent. But you know, I guess that's part of the the, the circle of brewing life. Yeah, well, even before I left for Canada, I could see that happening already. You'd walk into a pub, and there appeared to be a great selection, but it was. You know, it was all Lion product or whatever, or whatever the parent company was. So, um, yeah, it, it is a bit bit of a shame to see. It is harder and harder for independent guys to, to get a tap. But um, it's a bit different over here. But, um, you know, the whole industry is completely structured differently. So, yeah. So you, you left Colonial and uh, you moved on to Little Creatures, which was still in its fairly you know, early stages. Yeah, they sort of parachuted into little creatures, if you like. They sort of offered me a, um, you know, somewhere to work. Um, 
little creatures had got to the point where they had outgrown their original 50 hectolitre brew house at the Fremantle location. Um, and they were in the process of building the big one next door. Um, so my job was to, once that handover had gone to the brewery next door, was to decommission the the original old 50 hectolitre brew house and move it across to uh, the Yarra Valley and set up um, White Rabbit. So that was, that was kind of, um, that was a really exciting project to take something existing, move it, do something completely different with the with the same uh, brew house. And um, yeah, that was, that was a fantastic opportunity. I, I really enjoyed that. How long were you with them for? Was it just essentially to do that project? Look, um, the plan was to, to stay on there. Um, in retrospect, I'm really glad that I didn't because, uh, you know, the business didn't support that brewery. And I think it got packed up and moved to Geelong. Um, that was post so Lion, what... yeah. That, that was post the uh, Lion. Or, or, or were you oh. working for it when uh, Lion had taken over? No, to... no. Lion were just like a twenty percent sort of um, yep. stakeholder or something at that point. Um, so, but once we, once we actually got it built, I was working with a general manager who'd been appointed from the hospitality side at Fremantle. And unfortunately, he had no idea how to be a general manager of a brewery, and I I just couldn't work with this guy. And um, you know, I had no staff, I had no budget, I had no nothing, and I just said, "This is ridiculous. I've got better things to do." Um, and uh, there was a point. My wife and I had always been talking about moving to Canada. Um, her folks live here in in British Columbia, and they, you know, they're getting old. Um, we wanted to spend a bit more quality time with them, so we thought that was a good time to pick up sticks and, and move to Canada. Yeah, so to tell us a little bit about that move. So you, you didn't have a plan. It was uh, your wife was Canadian and wanted to move back, or it, it was just uh, yeah. looking for new adventures? Yeah, so um, I met my wife uh, right back in the early days in 2000 when I started at Malt Shovel, and she travelled all around the country with me, um, and I thought it was about time that I, <laughs> I really did something that she wanted to do rather than the other way around. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so she'd been in Australia for 15 years or something and was uh, looking to looking to return. Um, and I'd visited Canada often before we moved back here and I just love the place. It's fantastic. You're a beautiful place and lovely people. So I was, yeah, I'm up for an adventure. So <laughs> we packed up and, and off we went. Um, the plan was always to come here to Victoria. Um, my wife did her undergraduate degree at the university here, even though her family live in Vancouver. Um and so we spent a year in Vancouver, me trying to get my residency and and uh, this and that, and then uh, and then the job came up in Victoria. So we we completed the move, if you like, and we've been here ever since. So tell us a little bit about the um, Canadian brewing industry. Well, it's kind of interesting. Um, again, that, that story that you mentioned about uh, Willie Simpson and. That really related about Shara having to go to the, um, you know, to, to get a liquor license and that sort of thing, or, or a brewer's license. That happened here as well. No um, brewing license had been 
issued in Canada for 50 years. And the first one started here in Victoria um, at Spinnaker's Brew Pub um, about 32 years ago. Um, again, they had to actually change federal legislation to enable this to happen. And um, so where I'm living now is actually the birthplace of craft beer in, in Canada. It's spread far and wide since then, but um, we, we still have a very uh, quite well-developed and, and very heavily saturated craft beer industry here on the island. It's, it's fantastic. When you look at places like uh, the US and Australia, a lot of the things that are driving craft beer was it, it's a rebellion against the lack of options. You know, going back 15, 20 years, it was the homogenization of the beer market. Um, so, you know, the, the, the early um, launch rebelling against that but then more recently there have been a whole lot of other drivers um to the industry yep. around changing cultures what, what what drives the uh canadian uh or assuming that there's a homogenous uh, national beer market or at, at least uh, where you are yeah well it, it, it is slightly different in that there really isn't a homogenous you know um national beer market for the really big brands like Molson and Labatt, yes, but um, we, we don't have um, a lot of national craft brands like you do in Australia. There's no Little Creatures or Stone and Wood or, you know, Gage Roads or anything like that that, w- that you can buy nationally. Um, there are still barriers to um, trade between different provinces in Canada, which, you know, that would never exist in Australia. The ACCC would stamp that sort of stuff out in a you know, uh, in a moment, but um, we still we still sort of have that. So things kind of develop in isolation here. Um, so our biggest craft breweries aren't all that big because they tend to just service the province that they're in, um, which which I think is kind of good. They they don't become mega craft breweries. And I guess that would make them a little bit less attractive. You know, whereas in Australia, the small craft breweries that have ambitions to grow do become national or at least regional um, and you, you can't yeah. make a business just staying exclusively in your own backyard. Um, and yeah. you know, so, so the Bolters, the Four Pines, the um, Pirate Life's all looked nationally. Um, yeah. that, that would, I would imagine, make them a little bit less attractive to take over. Yes, I think so. Um, because if, if you don't have access to the whole country, then, um, yeah, it, it's not as attractive at all. Um, and uh, hopefully those barriers break down in the future. Not that I'm a great advocate for Lion coming in and snapping up everything in uh, in Canada. Um, they started to move into the U.S. Uh, recently. I think they just bought... New Belgium, um, New yeah. New Belgium, yeah. So... Um, yeah, I kind of like it how it is at the moment. Um, it's, you know, you can be big enough, but you can't get massive. Where I live on the island, there's, there's another driver in that the island, it's, it's a huge island. If you look it up on the map, it's always been fiercely independent. So um, we've always had local beer here, um, even though, you know, new breweries haven't started up until sort of quite recently. Um, we had a sort of like a mega brewery on the island and that's all that anyone ever drank, Lucky Lager. Um, and you could still buy Lucky, but, um, but 
but but people here are like fiercely independent. We we buy island, we buy island beers, island food, and uh, and so yeah, the craft beer market here is like fifty percent of uh, yeah of of all beer sales, which is pretty and, remarkable. And what's the population compared to the number of breweries? Oh, so in BC, I, I think we've got about three million people and one hundred and seventy breweries. Okay. So the wow. population of population of Queensland with a hundred and seventy breweries in it. Okay. That yeah. So that that's sort of well above uh, per capita for for Australia. I'm just did a quick search. So Vancouver Island itself, the population is uh, almost seven hundred fifty thousand. Um, oh, and we got about fifty breweries on the island. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So it, it, so does it have a like a go out and dine culture? Yeah, absolutely. So that's that's a recent change that's happened here a few years ago in that um, you could basically operate a brewery like a pub. Um, so you can just come in and drink beer and stuff like that. Food has to be available if people want it, but it doesn't have to be, you know, there used to be laws about you had to have a meal and things like that. Um, so all of the all of the new breweries that have opened up in the last sort of four three or four years have all been like destination breweries where you go and sit and drink and have fun with your mates and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, everyone just goes to their local brewery now, which is great. A bit like um, Mountain Goat. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, so very much like that. So do you get back to Australia very often? Have, have you sort of had a chance to, to visit some of the, uh, the brew pubs, even the larger ones? Yeah, I've, vis- I've visited a few in Sydney recently. Most of my family, unfortunately, live in New Zealand. Um, it's cheaper and easier to fly to New Zealand than it is to Australia. So unless I need to go to Australia, I kind of avoid it. <laughs> that sounds <laughs> I, terrible. I, only, for cross, not, <laughs> only for cross, not yeah. for uh, any other consideration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, so there's a... Yeah, my sisters live in the inner west of Sydney, so... Um, I've been to all of the new breweries there, and yeah, I really like them. And that, that's that's what's happening sort of here as well. That all the new breweries are like really micro, um, uh, super local. Okay. So, you know, and, you're, not, you're not really, yeah. And, and what styles are we seeing? Um, you know, being popular. You know, the, the internet um, makes it very easy for. Beer culture, you know, that, that sort of uh, a fairly homogenised beer culture to, to to spread internationally yep. with sours and juices and you know all, all of the yep. those things. But uh, what what are we seeing in in your local market? No, same old same old thing. Unfortunately, oh, okay. that's that's the that's the downside of the internet. I've I've always believed that you know good things only um, uh, evolve in isolation. You know, I'm a bit of a uh, evolutionary biologist um, by <laughs> trade so but we, we don't have that isolation really because of the internet so you know whatever else everyone else is into we're into as well so we, we don't have any sort of really unique um, you know indigenous Pacific Northwest beers if you like okay, I mean and- we used to have IPAs but you know now everyone doesn't drink our West Coast IPA anymore anyway so Everyone sort of moved on to juices. That, that that in itself is interesting because the the numbers of beers that are entered into IPA categories um, seems to bear out that IPAs are still a thing. Um, but but yep. 
you're seeing a shift away from the that 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 bold West Coast style. Yeah, well, it's, it's kind of interesting. You know, the number one biggest craft beer in BC is still um, this enormous, um, in-your-face, bitter West Coast IPA. Um, it's one I used to brew at a local brewery called Driftwood. Um, and so all of the new breweries are, are brewing New England-style hazies and sours and this and that. And Driftwood do a few sours as well, but their West Coast IPA is still the biggest selling craft beer in BC, but you see more and more a a decline in that that West Coast style and more of a a shift, Um, which saddens me because I do really like that style. Yeah, and and I I guess that's always the challenge we have. Um, You you know, a lot of the styles that I have a fondness for and seek out other styles that I cut my teeth on. But consumers who are under 30 who have found other things in, in, in beer are going to have a completely different, um, you know, a, a approach to, to what they're looking for. Um, and so there is no one beer market. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I do really like here is it's um, the, everything is so seasonal. It's, there's a marked difference between winter and summer, um, you know, and, 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 uh, and autumn and fall as well. And, a lot of the breweries rotate their beers through that season and the same beer styles go through this rotating, you know, it's not just the pumpkin spice latte beers in, in autumn, but um, there's a whole lot of beer styles that rotate through. So everyone brews a, a wit in summer and everyone brews a double IPA in the fall and, and things like that. So everything rotates in and out going by the season I, I kind of like that yeah that, that was something that I very much loved about uh, being even in in France where they don't have a huge uh, craft brewing tradition um, but coming up to Christmas they would all do a, a Christmas beer but then they would have a, you know like yep. a, a a blanche and they would have a a, a, a wit style or you know there, there were just house variations of some classic styles and then you would have yep. you know some of the modern craft beers um sneak in as well yeah so we we do have that sort of seasonality still but you know ipa is always popular and yeah the the current wave of sweet milkshakey juicy things uh you know still there with us, unfortunately. <laughs> so did, this is where we do end up sounding like uh, sort of old old men uh, talking about back in my day, um, which you know, I, I, I guess all of the people that are reveling in in those beers now will, in uh, fifteen years' time, talk about. Oh, do you remember the good old days when we had milkshake IPAs? Yeah. Well, okay. Just going back to another Chuckism, um, he drilled into us that. Um, we needed to brew beers that invited further enjoyment. So his way of saying, you've got to finish that beer and go, geez, that was good. I want another one. Um, and my view is that um, a lot of these uh, hazy IPAs, especially the ones with lactose, um, don't invite further enjoyment. They're fun to drink one of them, but then you just go, yeah, you know, I don't want another one. And, and, Nowadays, when you go into a beer bar, there's a hundred different taps anyway, so you you don't need to drink another one of those anyway. Mm. But um, I, I don't know. I still I still believe that your beer has to invite further enjoyment. That's that's one chuckism that I 
like I strongly adhere to and and so I'm not I'm not just going you know oh, I just smell fuddy duddy and <laughs> IPA um, I I don't think some of these modern styles of IPA invite further enjoyment yeah you're not going to drink a six pack and that is interesting in terms of the longevity of the style because at the end yeah. of the day you know as Chuck says you need to buy beers but if you take that mindset and apply it to evolving beer styles it does give you a, a roadmap for things that you should invest more heavily in, I'd imagine. You know, a lot of breweries are doing one-offs that are those beers, but your core range, I would imagine, would need to be built around something that had, does have a little bit more of the inviting further enjoyment. Yeah. So I'm actually currently enjoying a beer which is um, brewed by some gypsy brewers in Vancouver. Um, they call themselves Superflux, and they've made a double IPA with the Australian hop Victoria's Secret. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, their beers are traditionally no um, hops in the kettle at all. So it's all just, you know, finishing hops, in which was the way every, everything seems to be going these days. But because um, Vic Secret is so high in alpha acids, it's ended up being bitter and balanced almost by mistake. And I'm finding it absolutely delightful. <laughs> um, it, I actually think they've inadvertently made this more drinkable because of, yeah, the, the fact that they couldn't remove the bitterness from it. Okay, that, that, that's uh, that, that's an interesting insight. Yeah, and, and are Australian hops getting much recognition over there? Uh, they are now. Um, they didn't used to be no one had ever heard of them um as soon as i took control of um lighthouse brewery over here i started just bringing in um tons of galaxy and no one had ever tasted galaxy before um there was no agency for it over here or anything like that um and everyone just loved it um so i brewed a you know drinkable repeatable ipa full of galaxy hops and you can imagine it just went crazy um now everyone loves aussie hops over here um more so than new zealand hops um i think they're just a bit more cost effective the aussie hops at the moment with our dollar and things like that so um yeah everyone loves aussie hops over here now you've recently moved on to set up your own brewing consultancy um what, what, what drove that? Were you uh, tired of working for somebody else or you just saw some opportunities? Everywhere I've worked recently, I've um, had to sign all these non-compete agreements and I can't, I can't chat with anyone. I can't offer consulting advice or whatever. And, and I don't know, I just felt like I was just getting boxed into someone else's ideas of how beer should be made. And some of them, I mean, I'm working for people who don't have my experience, who don't have my training, who never learned under a Chuck Hahn or anyone like that. And they just really were starting to annoy me, all these people I was working for. And um, and I just said, you know, bugger this. I just want to help a whole lot of people rather than working to grow one individual person's business at no benefit to myself. Um, so I just said, yeah, bugger it. I'm going to... Um, I'm just going to go and help other people. Um, so that's the plan. I, I don't have a whole lot of um, clients at this stage, but hopefully that works out. 
And, and you don't have any interest in opening your own venue? Look, it is very capital intensive. Um, we thought about it. When we first moved to Canada and we had some money saved, Liz and I pretty much drove all around BC looking for places that would be good to build a brewery. And this is back in, uh, when was it, 2009, and there was hardly much going on there. We identified all these places which would be great to have a, a craft brewery, and um, now they all do. So all of these places we identified, so we're, we're kind of coming to it late. Um, I, I don't want to borrow money from other people. Um, instead, we bought a house, and that's been a really good investment for us. So my semi-retirement plan is still to, um, yeah, we'll sell up the house that we've got here. And we've also got a little um, property on one of the small Gulf Islands that has about um, 10,000 residents on it. And they're all artists and hippies and dropouts and, um, you know, doll bludgers and stuff. And, <laughs> and they're fabulous people. And it's a great island. They grow all their own produce and everything. And they desperately need their own brewery. It would be really well supported by the locals. So my sort of semi-retirement plan is to, yeah, move to our beach cottage and uh, build a little brew pub there so so i haven't given up yet okay so you're just looking at a little four or five hundred liter brewery uh to serve a, yep. a, a small artist community yeah absolutely and <laughs> uh you know make, make them work packs for the guys who don't want to pay tax and uh you know the the island is covered in apples so we'll make cider and things like that as well and um yeah, it'll be fun it sounds like, you know, a semi-retirement thing. And I can train a, a young local kid and they can go off and start their own career. That sounds like an ideal existence. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it'll be good. Well, Dean, thank you very, very much for joining us uh, for this conversation about, uh, geez, it's had a little bit of everything. It's had a little bit of travel and uh, beer history and, uh, you know, I international trends and some old man nostalgia. <laughs> there you go. Um, yeah, it, Anyone visiting British Columbia, and I thoroughly recommend you do, um, yeah, just look me up and we'll go and have a beer together in the pub. I'll, I'll consider that an invite. And uh, conversely, if, if you <laughs> if you do make it to the Big Island, um, you're welcome to uh, stop by Brisbane and we'll uh, do a bit of a tour of the Brisbane beer scene. Yeah, nice. Good on you. Dean McLeod, thank you very much for joining us and uh, all, all the very best with the consulting business. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Cheers. And that was Dean McLeod. Don't forget, if you like what we do at Radio Brews News, you can help us out in a number of ways. You can sponsor the show, either by a small monthly contribution or through a one-off donation. You can find details in the show notes. You can review our podcast on iTunes or your favourite podcasting service. Let us know what you think and help others discover the show. Finally, you can tell us directly what you think by sending an email to producer at brewsnews.com.au. All letters received will receive a Brews News bottle opener. And thanks to our good friends at Beer Cartel, the letter of the week will receive a mixed six-pack of Australian craft beer. When Brews News cast and crew are buying online, we buy at Beer Cartel. We love hearing your thoughts on the stories we cover because beer is a conversation.